just remind us where we are in this fascinating book that we've been in the last few weeks. Habakkuk is a prophet and he's a prophet in Judah and he has lived through some of the uh, glory days of Judah. Remember he's seen revival under King Josiah, seeing God's people uh, just fall in love with the law and God's word. Again, he's seen people move away from um, from idolatry and come towards faithfulness in God. And he's seen it all fall away. And what we know that he sees around him in these first few verses is evil, injustice, corruption, almost the, the exact opposite of what he's seen under King Josiah. And we've seen him cry out to God. And he comes and he sees just the the reality of evil around him and he cries out to God and he repeatedly comes and cries out to God. He's not satisfied that he doesn't have a response and, and so he keeps on coming. How long, O oh Lord? Like how long is it going to take for you to intervene here? And we don't, we don't see it, we don't read it, but I'm sure because all of us would have the same uh, a thought if we were Habakkuk, the desire is that he wants, he wants the nation of Judah to be restored. He wants the, the glory is back. He wants people to walk faithfully with their God again. He wants to see justice come about, but he wants to see God's people love their Lord as their God. What we see in these next few verses, and we just glanced over it last week, is God will not let sin and injustice go unchecked. Habakkuk has this continual cry, and it seems like he's sitting in the silence and maybe he has this question in his mind, God, are you... Are you even seeing what I can see? Are you going to act? Are you going to intervene? And what we see going forward from these verses is God says, yes, I am. I see what's going on. And I will not be apathetic to sin and evil and injustice. So let's read these verses again. We read them last week, but we're going to just have a bit of a closer look this week. Chapter 1. Verses 5 to 11. This is God replying to Habakkuk's cry. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk says to God, can you see what is going on? God says, yes. Lift up your head and see what I'm going to do. I see it. And I'm not going to sit idly by and let evil keep building up. I'm going to intervene. And he says, I'm going to bring Babylon, the Chaldeans, to bring judgment on Judah. Now, let me just give us a little bit of background to the Babylonians. In fact, we see it in uh, these verses here, verses 6 to 11. 
six verses of God. Really, he just says to, to, to Habakkuk, yes, I'm going to do something. And then he uses the rest of his response to tell him what it's going to look like, who it is going to be. And he gives 20 different descriptions of, of what Babylon are going to do and who the Babylonians are. We, we don't have a frame of reference for them. This isn't our day. It isn't our context. So it's helpful for us just to jump in a little bit and understand who these people are. For us, it's just the name in the Bible, maybe. Or maybe we've had a little bit in history classes, but God really helps us here in his response to tell us exactly what is coming to Judah. Lift up your head, Habakkuk. Look out, because something is coming. Verse 6, he says the Babylonians, they are bitter and they are hasty. The root words that he is getting out there, he's trying to describe. It's the same words that would be used to describe a kind of savage, wild animal. That's who the Babylonians are. They're kind of that, that crazy, like, rabid dog that, that maybe you've seen around. Uh, maybe we, we don't get it a lot in our context, but on films, and it's like just saliva dripping from its mouth. That's the picture that God is describing here. They are wild, and they are battle-hardened. They have been grinding away at Assyria. Remember the three superpowers, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. They've been grinding away at Assyria for 20 years and they've got a reputation for being barbaric. They are the worst of people across the earth at that time. Bitter and hasty. Verse 7, they are dreaded. They, these are fearsome people. They fear no one. They are a law unto themselves. Verse 8, they, they have swift horses. They are like a swift eagle who's moving into the kill. He's describing a, a force that are efficient in battle. They know what they are doing. They have the resources of war behind them. Verse 9, they are known for violence. So remember back in verse 3, Habakkuk looks out across Judah and he, he complains about the violence that he sees. Well, God says, Habakkuk, more is coming. More is coming. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine so the Babylonians come in to bring justice on you. Verse 10, it says they scoff. They laugh at those around us. They aren't intimidated by anyone. In verse 10, he describes a kind of military efficiency that they have. He says they laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. This was a, an ancient practice which the Babylonians uh, rarely invented. So if you imagine a fortress or, or a city that you had and you have walls around it and you think that you're safe in there because you've got these big walls, you've got all your soldiers looking out and no one can get through. What the Babylonians would do is they would bring their spades and they would build, literally build a hill around your fortress and circling all the way around so you can't get out when you want to. And then they would have the high ground and they would be able to look in and, and fire whatever weapons they had back in the day into your fortress. Like militarily, they were clever, they were efficient. And in verse 11, he describes an almost coming like a hurricane force. They sweep by like the wind and go on. They leave devastation in their path. And they idolize their own strength, guilty man whose own might is their God. That's what's coming. God says, I see it. I see it. And this is what is coming. I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring about my justice. Now, let me give us two side notes. Because we can see what God is doing. And maybe we look at Babylon and think this is, this is a harsh um, hand that God is bringing about here. But let me just give us a first of these side notes. The first thing is this. God is not irrational. Like he hasn't just heard Habakkuk's crying. He's like, right, what are we going to do, guys? We've got to come on. Who, who's around? Babylon. Let's use them to come and bring judgments. 
Like he's not just, just shooting from the hip and he's trigger happening. He's like, okay, what, what can we do to sort out this mess? That isn't what God is doing at all. In fact, God has told his people this will happen for centuries. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is what he says to his people. They are brought out of Egypt. He brings them out of slavery. And he says, if you obey my commands, things will go well for you. You will enter the land. You will enjoy all of the things I'm going to bring to you. But if you don't obey my commands, this is what will happen. And he lists out all of the the curses that will come if God's people walk in disobedience. And then listen to this. Deuteronomy 28 verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. You recognize any of those descriptions from the passage we've just read? Verse 8, he says, their, source, their horses are swift and leopards more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Hundreds of years before the the Babylonians had any power, God says, I'm going to bring a nation like an eagle to come down and bring justice upon you. And then about a hundred years before, through the prophet Isaiah, God says, clear as day, black and white, Babylon are going to come and bring you into exile. It is coming. So don't look at God's uh, uh, hand of judgment here and think, well, he's just irrational. He's just kind of doing, doing something in quick response to Habakkuk's cry. He wants to do away with evil. No, God has told them and given them many, many, many ways out. Just obey my commands and it will go well. And if you don't, this is what it will look like. And God's people walked in disobedience. And in exactly the ways that God said it would happen, judgment comes upon them. Here's the second side note that we need to see we look at the babylonians and we can read about them in history they were a wicked wicked people and god sees them as wicked he sees them as guilty just as he sees judah as guilty he sees babylon as guilty god is not justifying how they live and he's not justifying their their barbaric nature he's not justifying that they are a warring people they are as guilty as judah and he will deal with them so in verse 6, where we see God say that he is raising up the Chaldeans, he's raising up the Babylonians, that does not mean that God condones what they are doing. He is opposed to everything that Babylon stands for. But God, in his sovereignty, will use wicked men and women to accomplish his plans. He will. And so when we look out across the world at the moment and we see ISIS and we see Boko Haram and we see North Korea and and Iran and we see wicked men and women doing seemingly what they will unleashed around us. Let us not think for one moment that God is standing back and, and he is hopelessly just he doesn't know what to do. Every nation is under the sovereignty of God. Every ruler is under the sovereignty of God. And he may use even the likes of Iran and North Korea for his sovereign purposes. And he is absolutely not apathetic to any of it. He will use whatever means it takes to establish his purposes, which is this, to bring a people to himself even the most barbaric and wicked of nations. And we all see, even in Habakkuk, that Babylon don't get away with it. God may use them here, and we see that in chapter 1, but they do not get away with it. We're going to see that in the next few weeks, in the next few chapters. 
But Habakkuk sits and he hears this response from God, Babylon are coming. And it is going to be unbearable. It will look like something you can't even imagine in your mind how bad it's going to be, Habakkuk. And we're going to see in the next few verses next week, Habakkuk's like, no, that isn't quite what I had in mind. Like when I prayed to you how long, like when I asked you to sort this out, Babylon wasn't really what I had in mind. Like, like come and do something, God, but, but that is too much. And it's almost like Habakkuk feels we're going to see that the, the, the punishment for the crime of Judah is totally disproportionate. Now that there may be one of the biggest tensions that Christians and non-Christians feel when we look at the character of God. How can a good God, a God who says that he is loving, be also a God who punishes? How can a good God be a God who is also a God of judgment? How, can, how often have we heard this? How can a good God send people to hell? And in fact, people look at God and they see his judgments and they read passages like that and actually say that is unloving. Like that is a God who isn't loved. That is a God who is unloving. And for those of us who are Christians, we know just how nervous we get, you know, when we're having that conversation with a friend or a family member. And then we can just feel it, it gravitating towards that question. Well, well, how, how does a good God do this? We feel that nervousness rising up within us. And can I say that is a legitimate struggle? There's a big reason why people reject Christianity. It is a legitimate struggle to just feel the tension of God being a God who says he is good. And didn't we see that last week? And a God who says he judges. And I want to give us three reasons why we feel that struggle. And then I want to close us out with showing us why the gospel in light of those things is so scandalous. So here's the first reason why, why I, think, I think we feel that struggle of, of God saying he's good, but also seeing how he judges like we see him here. The first reason is this, that our perception of justice is wrong. We have an incorrect perception of what justice is. More than we know, folks, culture determines how we think. It does determines the parameters of, of what is right and wrong. More than we know, culture tells us what our morals are. So when we think about sexuality or ethics or money, culture really determines what is right and what is wrong with those things. But I want to encourage us this morning, when we pick this up and when we feel the tension of culture saying one thing and God's word saying the other, brothers and sisters in Christ, stay with the Bible. Do not stray from this book. Always go with the Bible. And here's why. Three quick reasons. Because one, when we look at culture and we look at God's word, one is transcendent and one isn't. What I mean by that is one fits into the culture at any point in time and one doesn't. So let's just think about Iran. We mentioned that before. Could we take Western culture and, and push it into Iran? No. Like the Americans have, have tried to a little bit and failed miserably. Like, can you imagine us saying to, to people in Iran, okay, uh, this is what democracy looks like. This is what it looks like for you to dress. This is what education looks like. This is what your economy looks like. This is what it looks like to have, to have um, a military. Like, it just wouldn't work. We think in certain ways in Western, Western culture, and they think in certain ways in Western culture. Now, can Christianity have an impact in Iran? Yes. In fact, you know what the biggest, the fastest growing religion in Iran is at the moment? Christianity. Because it's transcendent. Culture will shift and change. 
but the word of God will not. One is transcendent and one isn't. One changes and one doesn't. So the values that are held in here, the values that God says that we cling to are permanent. The values that culture holds onto shifts and changes. Now listen, in the last, so rewind 50 years ago, 1970s, the idea of a church being hosted while there is beer in, another, in the adjacent room would make people sick. Honestly, in fact, hands up, he's wearing, I was going to say hands up, he's wearing jeans. This guy, the elder of the church, isn't wearing anything below his knees. Come on, guys, like this is, but honestly, like 50 years ago, that would have people in tears. Culture changes. The values that culture hold on to change and they morph as we move along. I think, by the way, they're wonderful eggs. I haven't got a problem with it at all. But the word of God does not shift. The values that the word of God tells us are true. Do not change. So one is transcendent, one changes, one doesn't. And here's the final one. The Bible always delivers what it promises and culture does not. In fact, it cannot. All of the commands that are given in here are given for God's glory and for our good. And I need to say this, in my 17 years of following Jesus, I've never found that not to be true. Every time I felt the word of God call me in one direction to, to walk in obedience, even when I felt to the moment, it's just, it just doesn't feel like that's going to be good for me. But when I walk in it, every time, and sometimes it takes hindsight, but every time it works out for my good and for the glory of God. Culture cannot give you that promise. So when I was 15, I got my first phone, a Mars Trium. And I got a phone because I needed to contact my girlfriend. And we texted. And that's all you could do on your phone was text, play snake, and phone. That's all you could do. And then as culture kind of grew and a little bit, we found out that actually, no, we need to be able to send emails on our phone. So then we start sending emails. And, and then we realized, no, we need to be able to, to um, and take photos. And then we, said, we had cameras. And now literally on this phone, I can, I can run my life. I can buy a house on here. I can uh, watch my children on a little video if something's set up. I can um, run a business. I can do anything I want on this phone. And culture keeps on promising us that this is what we need. We need these things to kind of help us. But, and this is where I get on on my soapbox. You know, some of you guys, you know I love this. These phones are destroying us. They've actually got new medical terms that have had to be made up because of our phones. Claw hand. Sounds horrific, doesn't it? From texting. We've got bad necks because our heads are kind of crooked over. We're more anxious, honestly. We're more anxious because we spend so much time looking at what other people are doing, trying to live up to them because of social media, which is all meant to make us more connected, right? And and give us more friends. And in fact, it's done the opposite. Every time the Bible tells me, go in this way, it's going to be good for you. Every time it's right. And more often than not, when culture says, come this way, it's going to be good. More often than not, actually, I'm worse off for it. Our perception of justice is wrong because often we hear culture telling us, this is what is right. This is what is wrong. This is what good judgment looks like. And the word of God tells us something, something different. But can I say to us, stay here. When the word of God tells us, this is what good justice is. This is what good judgment looks like. Stay here. Firstly, our perception of justice is wrong. Secondly, our perception of God is so often wrong. The idea that God would judge us, the idea that God would send people to hell, 
most people outside of these walls would say that that is holy or unloving. To think of God as loving and at the same time a God who judges feels like incompatibility. Feels like water and oil, like you can't put those things together. How can a God love and judge? But we need to remember, folks, it is precisely when we love something that we act with judgment. It is. Like I think of Elizabeth. I think of my wife. I think if, if someone came to attack her or defame her or was saying things, what kind of husband would I be if I just stood back and just watched? Just let it happen. You can say what you want to my wife. I'm not going to intervene. You just do what you want. Actually, what a loving husband does is they step in and they act and they bring judgment and they bring justice because they love their wives. And in the same way, because God loves humanity, he will not stand idly by while his image bearers are attacked while they are degraded by sin. And let's just be clear what we mean when we say God is love. Because again, love in our culture means one thing, doesn't it? Like I love um, steak, I love cycling, I love trammy rovers. But here's the thing. What we mean by that is in this moment, that thing makes me happy. And I can tell you 90 minutes yesterday, I'm watching the scores with Tramir. And in the same 90 minutes, I love Tramir and I hate them. Like I just want to be rid of them. In, in the moment, I love them, but if things change, well, let's just see about that. God's love is not like that. The Bible describes God's love as this word, hesed, which is a loyal love. It's a covenantal type of love. It's an unchanging type of love. It's actually connected into his covenant with creation. God's love is uncompromising, an uncompromising type of love towards his creation. The idea that God is a distant judge, that he just sits up here and points his finger down at us and and tells us off when we've done wrong things, that is a million miles away from the truth. God created us. We are the pinnacle of his creation. The Bible says that we are his workmanship. We are the apple of his eye. He loves us and he cannot stand idly by while we, his image bearers, walk in the opposite way of what he has commanded us to live. He cannot stand idly by while we run after sin instead of running after the good things that he has given us. He will not be apathetic towards it. He cannot stand idly by while evil people roll out their evil deeds and defame his image. He will not be apathetic because he loves humanity. He doesn't judge because he hates us. He judges because he loves us. Like you think of something that you've made that you love. Like I think of walls that I painted. This is sad. Walls that I painted in my house, particularly white walls. And when the kids come along, you know, in our house, you come in, come in and just have a look. At this level in our house, above that, everything's really clean. Below that, everything's Johnny's laughing because he's seen it. It's filthy. And you know what gets me really angry is when I painted that wall, spent time making it look really nice. I put my heart and soul into it. And Micah just comes, it's always Micah, and he puts his chocolate fingers all over it. It makes me furious. Because I've made that thing. It's just a wall, but I love it. I put my effort into it. God loves humanity, folks. When we are defamed, when we are degraded, when we stain ourselves with sin, he's not just going to stand by and be like, oh, well, no. We are the apple of his eye. 
So often we have a wrong perception of God. And finally, often we have a wrong perception of sin. Like we know sin is wrong, don't we? We know that. One of the tensions that we feel when we look in here, particularly in the Old Testament, I think, is we see God judging for sin and so often we think, ah, it just feels like you're overreacting a little bit, God. Like we, we know that what they've done wrong, but it just feels like you've maybe gone a little bit too far. Like we look at Genesis chapter 6 and we see corruption rolling out across the earth, but, but really did we have to have a, a flood and, and get rid of everyone? Or about Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. As Lot and his wife are leaving and God says, don't look back. And Lot's wife turns back and she turns into a pillar of salt. Like maybe we read that sometimes. We're like, ah, it just feels like a, a step too far to Samuel chapter 6. You know the story of the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Israel. And it starts to wobble a little bit. And, and, and Uzzah puts his hand out to stop it falling. And he dies in an instant. You don't touch what is holy. And maybe we think that's just Old Testament God. He's a bit angry. But what about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, keeping money to themselves and God strikes them down dead? If we're honest, guys, and let's just be honest, I think sometimes we read these things and we think, ah, too much. Maybe you've just gone a little bit too far there, God. Yes, they've sinned, but that feels a bit harsh. But here's what we're doing when we respond like that. We are having a human-centered perspective on sin. We need to have a God-centered perspective on sin. See, what we do when we think like that, and I think we all do, is we're thinking about the scale of the sin rather than who the sin is offended, who the sin is perpetrated against. So let me describe it like this. We're really into monopoly at the moment in our house. And now and again, someone cheats. Never me, but um, someone uh, now and again will, you know, just either take a little bit extra from the bank or um, put an extra house on there. We've all, we've all done there. Let's not um, pretend we haven't. Now, if we cheat at Monopoly, what happens? Well, you might get away with it or you'll get a telling off from your husband um, or from um, your parents. Um, but if you do that, the consequences are what they are. You know, we'll still be friends and, and we'll get on with it. Um, if I cheat on my wife, what happens there? What do we call that? Adultery. Now, will I go to prison for that? No, but the consequences are heavy, right? We know that that's serious because my wife is someone who's special to me. I, I venerate her. I hold her up in a place of honor. What if I cheat on my taxes? Well, I'll probably get a letter through the door and get a summons to the court and have to pay a fine. What if I cheated on my country? What's that called? Treason. Up until 20 years ago, you could still be executed for that in, in the UK. Do you know that? Now you'll get a life imprisonment, 25 years, if you commit treason against the country. Can you see the kind of escalation of consequences as we go up the chain from my kids to Elizabeth, to, to HMRC, to the Queen? That's who we commit treason against. What if we betrayed our creator? Now, Elizabeth's special. The tax man, he's special. The queen, she's special. Like we went here a few weeks ago. How, how more infinitely great is God? The one who created us. 
Now, when we betray him, when we walk in the opposite ways to what he has called us to live, the consequences have got to be heavy. So it's right that he judges us because sin, sin is grievous because of the one whom we offend. You know, the way that the Bible describes sin, it describes it as missing the goal. You know that picture in Romans where it's like, uh, Paul's using this picture of an archer and it's like the arrow goes over the target. That's what sin is. There's a goal that we're meant to hit. And when we sin, we miss the goal. And what is the goal of humanity? Well, we see it right back in Genesis chapter one. We see in the Ten Commandments, we see Jesus say it again in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the goal of humanity? To love God and love others. That's what we were created for. And so sin is a failure to be truly human. That's what it is. It's not to love God. It's not to love others. It's a failure to be truly human. And if we're honest, if we just kind of try and have that God-centered perspective on what sin is, we would find that we are more sinful than we know, folks. Even the best of us in here, you are more sinful than you would care to admit. Judgment of God is real. We need to see that. We need to have a right perspective of justice of God and of sin because the judgment of God is real. But here I want to kind of close us out. So is the grace of God. The judgment and the justice of God is real. He is a real judge, but, but his grace is just as real. And this is where we get the scandalous truths of the gospel. Just turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I just want to read these verses to us as we head towards communion. God's judgment is real. He will not overlook sin. He is not apathetic to evil. But listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Judgment is coming. Some of us might see God's hand of justice while we are here, kind of looking out and see him intervene. But, but the word of God says judgment is coming for everyone. Jesus says in Mark's gospel that on, on that day, On the day where we stand before God as judge, all will be revealed. No secrets. We know we can't keep secrets from God here, but on that day, all will be revealed. All of our works. And the goal on that day will be perfection. It will be truly human to have loved God and to love humanity perfectly. That's what we were created for. The goal is perfection and we are never going to make it. And that presents a problem. That should have every single one of us looking forward towards that day with fear. What did Peter just say in verse 13? How does he say to look look forward? Set your hope on grace. 
set your hope on grace. As you look towards the day of judgment, don't be fearful. Set your hope on grace. What is grace? It's Jesus. Hope is found in Jesus. That's what Peter says there. Set your hope on grace. And he says we are ransomed. God's people are ransomed. We were held hostage, held captive by our sin, unable to live perfectly. And we can't rescue ourselves. And so God intervenes and he rescues us and he buys us back, not with silver and gold. What does he buy us back with? The blood of his son. The Old Testament, the way to remove sin would be with the blood of an animal. We will stand spotless on the day of judgment because of the shed blood of Jesus. And that is why we can celebrate and that is why we can sing as we share this meal together, which is what we will do in a minute. For unbelievers, the silence of God is not his apathy towards your sin. Please don't think that. We're going to see that with Babylon in the common verses. Even though they are evil, he is going to use them for his purposes and he will judge them. Judgment came for them and judgment is coming for everyone who sins, which is all of us. Jesus says, as he looks towards that day of judgment, it will be a day of terror. He says, on that day, men and women will want the mountains to fall on them. That is how terrible it will be. So the right response is to repent and put your hope in Jesus on that day. And for us who are believers, we need to see that God sees us. And even when we take hold of sin, he still sends mercy and he still sends grace. Let his kindness let his said, his loyal love, lead you to repentance. As we take this meal in a minute, allow this bread, allow this wine, this juice to remind you of the grace in which we walk in now. A grace that was brought to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which will have us presented before God on that terrible day for so many. How was presented before God on that day? Spotless clean judgment already been poured out judgment of God for us already satisfied in his son Jesus Christ let's pray